Yeah, so the, in, in this uh, second part, you may be seated. In this second part uh, of Can't Get No Satisfaction, we're, we're exploring this idea of the times when you just get frustrated or scared or confused by just the, the voices in your own faith tradition. And if you are in one long enough, uh, that's bound to happen. And, you know, there's, when, when I was a, a younger adult, I can remember hearing all about uh, in Christianity this wave of, of, of kids leaving the church after, after high school. And what do we do about this crisis? And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you, when you start to peel back the layers on those things. And that's what I hope to do today. And the short answer, I'll tell you the answer from the beginning, the answer that I think to that question, what do you do when that happens, when you are unsatisfied and confused by a single story, a single narrative about your faith and how you experience God? The answer is you, you broaden your perspective to be able to receive gifts from outside of what you've been taught, of what you've been shown. That's, that's the answer on the front end. Now, how do we get there and what does that look like in Scripture? Let's take a look and see, because it is in Scripture. It's in the passage that we just read. Mary and Joseph did this, um, and other folks in Scripture have done this as well. So um, this, is, this coincides with an important story in the church calendar, as I mentioned before, Epiphany, which just means uh, an appearance, essentially. Uh, from the Greek root, it means appearance. And what's happening here is we have people who are not Jewish who are seeing the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, for the first time. And this was prophesied all throughout Scripture that this would happen, that the, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, would come and they would see this Messiah and they would worship him. And so we actually see that taking place here. So it's an important part of uh, the church calendar. It's an important part in, in the biblical prophetic tradition. And we're going to look at it from some different angles and see how it applies to this idea of not being able to get satisfaction uh, in your own story, from your own faith tradition. So uh, I want to I start us there with a story of my own from high school. And uh, this is a story about milk. It's a story about a carton of milk. So... Um, I was in um, something they called ISS, with, which is also known as in-school suspension, uh, for something lame, probably like just skipping class or something like that. But in in-school suspension, there's, there's, some, there's some heavy hitters in there sometimes. There's, there's some repeat offenders in there and uh, some rough, rough dudes. And uh, so in, in ISS, you, you, uh, when you come to the cafeteria, it's after everybody else. You eat lunch last. And there's like seven, eight people in there, and we're all at different tables, you know, so we can't talk to each other. And so spread out across half the cafeteria are these eight guys or so in in-school suspension. And then the coach who's watching us is over there somewhere. And this guy, about six, seven tables down, that was also an ISS, he signaled to me, he was pointing to my milk. He, and he was like basically saying, like, do you want that? And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want it. And he's like, well, throw it to me. You know, he was motioning to throw it to him. So I was looking over at the coach, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll throw. I'll toss him my milk. And I tossed it, and he went to grab it, and then he just let it 
splash all over the floor. And it made a huge noise. And so the coach saw it. And, uh, and he pointed at me. The kid pointed at me. And everybody saw that I threw it. And the only people really paying attention were me and him. And so, you know, I got in trouble. I think I got another day of ISS. And basically, this kid, this other kid, you know, he tricked me, right? And he was able to articulate what had happened in a way that made me look really bad, like I was doing something wrong. I was just like trying to be a jerk. I had some reason just chunking a milk across the room. And why wouldn't I? I'm already an ISS. I'm obviously a bad kid, right? And and the so he told this story, and the story was not untrue. I did throw milk across the room, but I was throwing it so he could catch it, right? So he was able to tell something that was true, but it wasn't the whole story. It wasn't, it wasn't all the layers of what was going on there. And so a, a lot of times that happens in our faith tradition when we have a single sort of voice, the same sort of person or the same sort of demographic of person who's telling us what our faith means and how it is to be expressed and understood. It's like the milk splashing on the floor. And it's not necessarily that what they're saying isn't true, but it's one-dimensional. It's only pieces of the story. And so that's kind of the position we want to take and the, the uh, perspective we want to embody as we look at this passage for a few minutes this morning. Let's, let's jump into the scripture here and see how this can unfold for us. So we're going to read the first three verses of this again. Uh, Verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So, uh, We've all seen a million times the, the three kings, the magi, the wise men, all talking about the same, same group of people uh, at the nativity and they're with their donkeys and their robes and stuff and they're offering gifts. And it's almost, it's almost something you've seen so many times, it just doesn't really have an effect on you anymore. But this story is incredibly rich and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. A lot of different stories are in this one story. And I want to start with this guy, Herod, King Herod. That's what the passage starts with. And it's important to think about who this guy is. He reminds me of different players in our world today. Um, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about who this guy, King Herod, was, because he has a huge impact on the story. It seems Matthew is contrasting King Herod and the Magi and their approach to the birth of Jesus. So Herod the Great. First, he started out as a governor. Uh, he, he kind of inherited political position through his, his dad. So in 47 BCE, uh, almost uh, 43 years before this moment, uh, 42, 43 years, he was governor. And then, he, then through uh, some fortunate circumstances, he was given an army to, to fight off some Parthians. And then he became king of Judea because that worked out well for him. He's also, he's also Jewish. So he's king of the Jews, and he is Jewish, but he comes from a group of people that were forced to convert to Judaism a few, a few generations back. And 
this guy, he's really clever. He jockeys for a lot of political power and position. He makes a lot of deals with people. He builds lots of great stuff. He builds all these like fortresses and he builds up cities. Uh, he's a businessman. He's, he's, a, uh, he's a wheeler and a dealer and he does things that he knows will have lots of cultural significance to the people he's ruling over to try to make them look at the other hand because uh, he's doing a lot of things that are bad for his people in the day-to-day but he's making these big deals. So, for example, he rebuilt the Jewish temple, the second temple, more splendid than it ever had been before. In fact, uh, I have a quote from uh, some of the the rabbis of the time that said, one who has not seen Herod's temple has never seen a beautiful building. Like, that's how amazing this, this building was. Um, so, like, the people that he had allegiances with was, like, Mark Anthony and, like, Caesar Augustus. People like that. Big players. Um, he also became extremely paranoid about his power. In fact, he, he had a lot of people killed. Um, he, he actually ended up having his favorite wife killed. And he didn't stop there. He killed her grandfather. He killed her... Uh, brother. He killed two of his own children by her. Um, And uh, so like three generations of his own family, he he had them had them murdered. So when you hear when you hear in verse three, uh, that King Herod heard this and he was disturbed. And then the second part of the line is, and all of Jerusalem with him. They were they were disturbed because he knew how fickle this guy could be. Um, and here's the problem. I, I can kind of relate to Herod as I start to get more into the story and I start to think about more of some of his motivations. And I wonder, I wonder if, if you could too. But before we get there, let's talk about the Magi. What do we know about these guys? Uh, well, we know that, that this word Magi comes from the word where we get magic. Um, and it describes, uh, it really is related to, I don't like to do all the, like the Greek uh, word stuff, uh, especially when we don't have a screen, but also I just don't, I just don't like to do it. I love words and I love word studies, but I feel like um, it's not the time to do it right now, just for me. I'll get, here, here's what I'll say. Magi and astrology are extremely related, those, those terms and those ideas. So these guys were astrologers of their time. They looked to the stars to try to orient themselves to the world and understand more about the world. And in the ancient times, astrologers were scientists. That There's an ancient form of science. It was this idea of observation, right? You observe the world around you, and you try to understand how the world works. So they're ancient scientists. So they would combine astrology with the ancient writings and texts that they became familiar with, with the observations they would see about reality. They were the guys that knew stuff. They were wise men, okay? And the interesting thing about these guys is here we see these men. They're coming from far away. We don't know exactly where. Maybe maybe Medo-Persia, maybe Babylon, maybe further places than that. They're of a different religion, a different ethnicity, a, uh, uh, a different geography. 
Uh, and they are coming all the way here to search for something that's greater and bigger than themselves, right? This is pretty impressive that they're willing to do this. King Herod, because we all know the story, and even if you don't, I'll tell you right now, King Herod, once he hears the words, another king, he's ready to chop some heads off, right? He's like, where? I'm going to kill him right now. He's paranoid. He's worried about losing the power he's amassed. He knows that it's very intricately and delicately in place what he's got going. And he's taking a very defensive position to hold on to his power. In fact, we find that after this story takes place, he makes moves to kill all the newborns up to two years old in the city of Bethlehem. And that probably really happened. So this guy is very serious about defending his power and his authority. So what are the differences between these guys? I think Herod, he's got, you know, he's got this Jewish background, but he's, he's something else. He's called an Edomite uh, by, ethnic, by ethnicity, yet he's ruling over these Jewish people, but he's also a Roman citizen. He got that from winning these, these battles and stuff. And I wonder if when he hears that there's another king, he's like, oh, man, I'm finally found out. I'm found out that I'm a fraud. Like, I wonder if he's been spending all of his time running from that, running away from, from who he is and all the deficiencies that he's felt in life. And he's trying to figure out how to get rid of, get away from the pain of that, of who he might actually be underneath all these great showy, flashy things he's trying to do. Um, we, we see he's just afraid. He's afraid of something that's more powerful than him. And we contrast that with the Magi who are expectantly looking for something that's more powerful than they are, that's greater than they are, so much that they're willing to leave the comfort. They're willing to risk physical danger to themselves. They're willing to risk spending resources, money and time and energy to go find something greater than themselves. These are not Jewish people who are coming to look for a Jewish king because they believe he might be some kind of messiah something greater than they are herod you know he's concerned with consolidating his power his self-importance he's trying to eliminate anybody who's a challenge to that he's trying to build himself up and the magi sought to give worship to something and gifts to something and a power greater than they herod was also just not even he didn't even know he didn't even know Jesus was born. He had no clue. The most resourced person in the area, the person who had the most access to the most information, had no idea about the birth of Jesus until the Magi came. So there's something, like I said before, there's something that I can relate to about this position of Herod's, this, this sort of idea of like, man, I've got a lot to lose here. Like, learning about this person, this situation, makes me think about what all I have to lose. All the reputation that I've built up, all the th way I've got people to think about me, any sort of power or control that I have in my life. And when we think about our faith system and how that's intertwined in so many other things, especially in the United States, especially the way a lot of us were taught to think about this, our faith is intertwined with these, these uh, concepts of power over other people, that we know something that makes us more 
uh, enlightened, uh, more intelligent, saved and not lost. These types of ways of understanding us and the world in a reductive way, in a way that boils it down to a story that's way too simple to, for the complex people that exist in the world here. That, that uh, let me say it this way, because it's, it's this idea of, of knowledge and understanding, right, of salvation that we have. Um, and, and when somebody else comes in with another idea, another perspective, it can feel scary if we've never talked or heard about these things before, or we've been told that all of those things are just what lost people think and believe, right? And, and I think sometimes, you know, I think Herod, let's, let's take it back to Herod for a second, because sometimes when we look at Herod, I think we can relate to this, is we've heard, you know, the phrase, the fear of the unknown. And when he hears this, this about this new king, I don't think it's the fear of the unknown that's really what's scary to him. It's, it's more that uh, he, he believes that what he doesn't know is going to be the worst of what he thinks and does. So um, if there's another king, he's going to do all the things that I do that I know are terrible, right? So he's going to be the worst expression of me of my ideas about the world, of my ideas about um, right and wrong, that that other is going to be as small-minded and petty as I am right now. It's kind of like the chicken and the egg, because if you've if you convinced you've got what you need and you have to just hold on to it and consolidate it, then your mind gets narrower, your ideas get smaller, and you get more and more scared. And then when you experience something new, then you assume that that new thing is just as bad as you are. Whereas opposed to the position of the Magi who take a position that there could be greater, better things out there than what we know. And how can we find those things to enrich our life and our world? Well, then you're going, you're going to have that kind of perspective, and you're going to be able to receive those things. See, Herod thought, oh, new king, he's going to try to usurp me and kill me and do all these things. And little did he know that that king could set him free from all the things that he was in bondage to. And that message isn't coming from inside of the faith tradition. It's coming from outside. It's coming from some foreigners, some, some stargazing uh, foreigners from another place, dressing in funny clothes, bringing funny languages and funny gifts here. And we ourselves, we don't really even have to get that far. I mean, there are people who are very close to us, could even be a spouse or a family member, who we've written off that we've decided that they're nothing more than the simple story of what I believe about them. And they're really much, much more than that. We don't have to get all the way to another religion, another, um, another uh, language, another ethnicity of person. We can probably relate to this right where we are sitting. Let's keep going, though. Let's keep going uh, in, in verse 4. So when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he had asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So these Magi are propelled by a hope of something greater than themselves, and it takes them all the way into another town, another city, Jerusalem, another religious structure, another power structure, and they find themselves in front of this king, and uh, they're asking, hey, do you know? Do you know about this guy? Do you know where we can find him? And, uh, you know, Herod gets scared. He calls together all these guys, the chief priests who are the mediators between God and man, teachers of the law, the rabbis, the experts in the scripture, and he asks them about it. He asks them about where this Messiah was to be born, and they, can, they, they give him the text. It's interesting Herod didn't know about it. You think in his paranoia he would have already had that text memorized and had it all staked out, right? But uh, it's interesting because Herod is not sharing all of this with the, the Magi. He himself is going to these folks, gathering this information, and then he brings it back to the Magi in a secret meeting, and he tells them, here's where it is. Go f- here's where it is in Bethlehem. Here's where the Messiah is going to be born. Go there, see if you can find him, and then let me know so I can worship him slash kill him, right? Um, also, the, the Magi, they're not, uh, they, they're talking to a king, but they've already assumed this isn't the guy that they came looking for nor his 14 children. Well, 14 total, you know, he had several of them killed, but, right? So they're not looking for something typical in terms of kingship. They're looking for something special, something extraordinary, right? But I want to draw your attention to this idea in this part of the text. Herod, with all his resources, he goes to the priests and he goes to the experts of the law, the, the scriptures, and he says, where's the Messiah to be born? And boom, right away they can give him an answer, right? So they know all the stuff. They've got the priests there who, are, who oversee the rituals and the connections between God and man. They know all of the scriptures and all of the prophecies, but it's the wise men, the magi from the east, that are the ones who have woken up to the fact that this Messiah is here. And so they're just adding their understanding, uh, they're adding the scripture to the understanding of something they're already certain is happening, right? So again, we have this contrast of the people within the tradition, our tradition, are they have the resources, they have the stuff, they have the scriptures, but they don't know what's going on. They can quote it, they can say it, but they don't know what's going on because we were never meant to become a siloed, isolated people. That's the opposite of the trajectory of Scripture. The trajectory of the Scriptures is to get bigger and more and more inclusive until every single human being fits within it. And that's what we see taking place here in this passage. So what are we, 
what, why would we be surprised that we can't stay satisfied with just hearing the people that already say what makes us feel good, what makes us feel safe, what makes us feel like everything we've always understood about the world is right and enough? It's not. I guess, I guess the, the weird thing about it is, is it can feel strangely satisfying for a long time when people tell you that. But a couple of things happen like what I shared in the beginning, like maybe when you're 19 and you go to college and you all of a sudden you've only heard one story your whole life about human beings, reality, God, all these things. And then all of a sudden you, you realize there's thousands and thousands of other stories. And you're like, man, I'm rejecting this one story, which I'm like, good, you should. That never made sense to me. It's like, oh, they're leaving the church. Yeah, because your church is is trying to talk about the world like it's this single-celled organism and not what this amazing, beautiful place that we have here. Like, can you look? Can you open your eyes like the Magi? Can you look around and realize this is a bigger story? And the interesting thing is it's, it's here. It's here in the scriptures. The, the story, I mean, the, the Bible, for, exa- for example, has 40, over 40 different authors over uh, uh, probably about 1,500 years of writing with lots of different perspectives. And yet we have people today, I mean, we have people today making it into one story, systematic theology and things like that, where it becomes this one systematized idea that's supposed to be completely cohesive. But I don't think that's the point. We're reading from the book of Matthew. It's one of the four gospels of the life of Jesus, which is the only gospel that even tells us anything about Magi that even records this event. And so there seems to be inherent in the works here of the scriptures and what we call the word of God, a a large diversity of story, of voice, of perspective. But this is also about human nature because it's scary. It's uncomfortable. And in fact, it's important for us to feel secure in our identities and what we believe, especially as we're going through adolescence, for us to gain a sense of who we are, to have an identity, and define ourselves against what we are not. But the key word in that is adolescence. That's a stage we're supposed to move through into more mature stages where we can entertain a broader and larger understanding of the world. So do you want to find yourself more like Herod? where you have to stomp out and eliminate the ideas that don't fit into your locus of control and power? Or do you want to be open-handed like the Magi, like the non-Jewish, non-Christian folks who come in and are the ones to recognize, to have the epiphany of the Son of God? So, um, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a way of talking about this that um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, a Nigerian writer, describes in a very, very popular TED Talk. can't remember when it came out, but um, it's, on, it's called The Dangers of a Single Story. And I've got a quote from it. She says this, The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. She says later in the talk that the consequence of this single story is this. 
it robs people of dignity. This is what we see going on here in this passage. I'm going to read the last few verses and kind of wrap this up here. But in verse 7, reading again, it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here we see Herod, a robber of people's dignities, doing what he does, threatened by a story other than the one that he has always needed to believe, what was true about reality, what was true about himself, what was true about other people. And then we see the Magi, and we see Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph were in a place to receive these people, to accept their gifts, all while running from their own king, from the one who represented the authority of their own ethnicity, their own religion. They were confident enough, Mary and Joseph were confident enough in their own framework, in their own ritual life, but they understood it in a way that allowed them to receive from outside of that as well. This is the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. This is this even has uh, notes of this in the book of Numbers with the prophet of uh, Balaam, who, who uh, you probably, if you went to Sunday school, heard this story because there was a donkey in it that talked at one point. Uh, this is the, the, Samar- the centurion that Jesus talked to outside of the the Jewish faith. This was the Good Samaritan in the most famous parable that Jesus told about what it meant to serve God, what was the most important commandment. To be able to receive things that seem strange, strange miracles, strange visitors, strange gifts. That's what Mary and Joseph did here. That's what the Magi were willing to do. They never for once thought that there was a single story. They would have never found themselves all the way over here in Jerusalem and Bethlehem had they thought that. So friends, if you're, if you're not satisfied, if you can't get your satisfaction, it doesn't mean that you have to leave the story that you've been given. It just means you need more stories. It just means you need to be open to the layers of the stories, to see it in different ways from different people, from different ages, from different Uh, ethnicities from different places and you might find that that story gets enriched and that your vision of the world gets larger and if anything that seems to be a lot of what Christmas is is about so let's pray Uh, Lord I thank you for uh, your word and I also thank you for this table that we're about to go to Uh, This table that represents hospitality, that represents an openness, that represents...
community. In fact, it's called communion. And I thank you that you invite us to this table, and I thank you that as your followers and believers, we invite others to this table. Amen.